0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to coffee slash U. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by... with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you and promotion of something you're working on. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com, and there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. The area of Rockwood was an extremely important area to the Indigenous in what would one day be Manitoba. Due to the fact the area was between Lake Winnipeg and Lake Manitoba, many indigenous groups would come through the area following game, camping, and trading. The primary group in the area was the Oji who were descendant from the intermarriages of the Cree and the Ojibwa over the centuries, which gave the area a distinct cultural mosaic. Indigenous archaeological records show that groups of people were living in the area as long ago as 5,000 years, and there is also evidence of several bison jumps in the area. The indigenous would form trails through the area that would become trails used by the settlers including the faith trail which runs from winnipeg to stone mountain these trails would bring ox-drawn red river carts through the area helping to bring settlement as french explorers began to arrive in the area along with fur traders they would give rise to a new indigenous group the metis the metis would become known for their incredible bison hunts through the region and they would have a massive impact on Canada and the formation of Manitoba into Confederation. In 1877, the All Saints Victoria Anglican Church was built in the new community of Rockwood. The building was one of the earliest Anglican churches built outside of the Red River Settlement area of Manitoba, and today it remains one of the few remaining examples of dovetail log construction for a church in the entire province. The first minister for the church was Reverend Samuel Matheson, who would go on to have a distinguished teaching career in the province. The building still stands today, and in 1997 was made a provincial heritage site. The rural municipality of Rockwood be formed in 1880, but was initially known as Little Rockwood before it became the RM of Rockwood. The principal meridian line running north and south would be drawn up and marked by a cairn that today is visible from the current Trans-Canada Highway. Located in the area is Oak Hammock Marsh, a 470 square kilometer area of marsh that is partly within the RM of Rockwood. Originally named St Andrew's Bog, the wetland was drained heavily for agricultural purposes in 1897, and by 1960, roughly 60 hectares had been drained. By 1967, efforts by the provincial and federal governments began to reverse this damage to return the wetland to its original size. By 1974, 3,450 hectares of land had been purchased and 22 kilometres of dikes were built to trap and hold water in the wetland. A total of 58 nesting islands were also constructed. The western shore of the marsh is home to the Ducks Unlimited Canada's head office, which also serves as an interpretive centre for the marsh. As soon as the RM was created, the land was divided into plots of 640 acres square. Then, those were divided into 160-acre squares, with 99 feet between each for a road allowance. From this, the formation of the RM of Rockwood would begin. The first bylaw passed by the RM of Rockwood would be to regulate businesses in the area. Two years before the RM of Rockwood was formed, Stonewall was established by Samuel Jacob Jackson, who had acquired the land that the town would sit on in 1875. Ironically, despite owning the land, he would not move into Stonewall itself until 1881. In 1872, the Manitoba Penitentiary was commissioned by the Government of Canada near to where Fort Garry sat. The isolation of the site of the penitentiary, along with the lack of building materials in the area, made the construction of the building difficult. Stone was quarried from lower Fort Garry, while timber was brought in from Ontario. A brick-making machine was also purchased from the United States and used to make 400,000 bricks from local clay. In addition, 60 tradesmen worked through the summer, while 25 stonemasons worked through the winter to build the penitentiary. Inmates began to arrive at the penitentiary in January 1877, despite the building still being under construction, although that would be finished in February. The final cost was $125,000, which was well over budget. On August 15, 1877, with Lord Dufferin in attendance, the penitentiary was opened with 14 inmates. By the end of the 1880s, the penitentiary had a hospital, staff quarter, schoolhouse, stable, forage, and slaughterhouse on the grounds. By 1913, the penitentiary held 200 inmates, although that would decrease during the First and Second World Wars. During the 1967 Pan-American Games, held in Winnipeg, The inmates made the mats, target frames, and winner's podium for the swimming pool. The penitentiary continues to operate to this day and is the oldest penitentiary in all of Canada now. Many famous individuals have been kept at the penitentiary, including Chief Powmaker and Chief Big Bear after the Northwest Resistance, as well as Robert Russell, one of the leaders of the Winnipeg General Strike. On June 30th, 1880, the CPR line was built and ran right through Stonewall, which helped the community boom as new settlers started to arrive. By 1901, the community had 589 people, which steadily increased to 2021, with over 5,000 people now living in the community. And if you'd like to enjoy the feel of an early train travel that settlers enjoyed, you can take the Prairie Dog Central. This is one of the oldest regularly scheduled vintage operating trains in North America. Volunteers run the train, which runs on a short line every day. The train leaves from the Inkster Junction Station and runs along the line for an hour with a stopover of 90 minutes and then a return back. In 1886, the Ridgway House was built by an unidentified Swiss builder who came to the area. It would move into the hands of John Ridgway in 1898, who would use it for years as a home. In 1944, the home was expanded to become the Gunton Waiting Station. This building was used to ensure that people could have a comfortable place to wait at a stop that did not get a full-fledged station along the railway route. It would be used as a waiting station for the people of the area until the early 1960s. Today, the building is now part of the Heritage Park, and in 2006, it was turned into a municipal heritage site. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada and I remember the days of dial up internet and spotty high speed service. For the past 3 years I have been a customer of ExploreNet and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom and uploading content. Through it all, ExplorerNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExplorerNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExplorNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. One of the main industries in early Rockwood was the quarries that harvested quicklime out of the ground. During the peak era of this, the silence of the area was punctuated by blasts of dynamite to break up the limestone. Today, the place where the powder magazine was kept has been rebuilt and is now near the Stonewall Quarry Park entrance. Today, Quarry Park has been turned into a heritage site covering 80 acres. It includes the Quarry Park Heritage Arts Center, which opened in 2011, and includes an interpretive center that highlights the history of the area. The quarry itself has been turned into a beautiful man-made lake, and the kilns, that were such an important part of the early history of the area, still stand and make for excellent picture opportunities. On April 20th, 1899, Alan Arnett MacLeod was born in Stonewall, where his father worked as a doctor. When the First World War began, he tried to enlist at the age of only 14, but he was refused because of his age. He would try to enlist several times, but was not able to until 1917. He would join the Royal Flying Corps and was shipped off to France on August 20th, 1917. And on March 27th, 1918, while flying over Albert, France, he destroyed a German plane and was then attacked by eight planes, three of which he shot down. During the fight, he was hit by machine gun fire and his gas tank was punctured. With the plane on fire and McLeod bleeding out, he pushed the plane into a steep side slip, but the flames started to hit him so he jumped out of the cockpit and stood on the wing holding the stick in his right hand. He broke a hole in the fabric to the fuselage so he could reach the rudder wire with his left hand, and with this he guided the plane back over the Allied lines. He was able to keep the flames from his wounded observer as well, and he prevented the plane from burning up. After crashing in no man's land, he dragged his comrade from the burning plane under heavy fire before reaching the trenches and collapsing from a loss of blood. In all, MacLeod was wounded three times in his side, while his observer was wounded six times and lost his leg. For his actions, he was awarded the Victoria Cross and sent home to Stonewall to recover. The Victoria Times colonist would write, quote, McLeod, notwithstanding his own wounds, dragged his comrade clear of the burning wreckage. He was wounded while performing the rescue and then fell exhausted from loss of blood, End quote. Sadly, he died only a few months later from the Spanish flu, only five months from his 20th birthday. Dr. Dave Christie would write a moving tribute of him in the Manitoba Free Press, stating Alan McLeod was the finest flower of chivalry. The old days of the knighthood are over, but for the very fairest blossoms of the spirit of the knighthood the world has had to wait till the 20th century. It was these dauntless boys who saved civilization. The heroism of the Crusades pales before the incredible and quiet courage of such boys who gave us the new interpretation of Calvary. I saw Alan within the few hours of his death. He faced the last enemy with the same joyous confidence with which he started on what he called the very happiest part of his life. For our children's children, names like Alan McLeod will be written in letters and splendors in the annals of Canada. Quote. A street in Stonewall is named for him, and his former family home is now the McLeod Tea House. At Stonewall Collegiate, a bust of his likeness is on display in the library. Around the time of McLeod's death, Stonewall and the entire district was booming. The Winnipeg Tribune would write, quote, The soil here is a black loam of varying depth on a clay subsoil and produces the high quality of grain for which the district has become famous. Farmers living in the locality export annually about 150,000 bushels of wheat and coarse grain, End quote. At the limestone quarries, 15,000 tons of limestone had been harvested by the early part of the 20th century, with 75 employees working under a manager. Work would begin on the Stonewall Town Hall in 1912 using local limestone. Over the course of the next year, this beautiful building was constructed and opened for use by the town in 1913. The town hall is considered to be a landmark structure in the community and was designed by provincial architect V.W. Horwood. Originally, it was built as the Provincial Land Titles Office, but the Town Hall soon occupied it. The building stands to this day and continues to be an incredibly important part of the community's historic infrastructure. It was made a Municipal Heritage Site in 1993. In 1914 work began on the construction of the Stonewall Dominion Post Office. Built over the course of one year of local limestone the building is considered to be the province's foremost example of the Prairie School architecture that was popular at the time. It was also one of only a few pre-1915 federal post offices built in Manitoba that departed from the precedent that had been established in the province for such buildings. The post office was used for over 60 years and today remains as an integral part of the historic streetscape of Stonewall. Today it is now an art gallery and in 1989 it was established as a provincial heritage site. On January 7th, 1916, Walter Peter Pratt was born in the RM of Rockwood. He would begin to play hockey on the frozen ice of the area and was good enough that he could play for the Kenora Thistles from 1933 to 1935. His skill with the team gained the notice of the New York Rangers, who signed him in 1935-36. He would play for the team until 1942-43, recording his best season in 1941-42 when he had 28 points in 47 games. He would also win the Stanley Cup with the team in 1940. He was then traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs where he would record his best years, recording 57 points in 50 games in 1943-44. He would also win the Stanley Cup in 1945 with the team, and he won the Hart Trophy in 1944. When he retired in 1946-47, he had recorded 292 points in 517 games. In 1966, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, In 1998, he was ranked the 96th greatest hockey player of all time, and in 2009, he ranked 47th on the list of the greatest New York Ranger players in history. Uh,
1: The whole neighborhood uh, where I was brought up, everything was sports in those days. Uh, You know, there was no radio when I started off to speak of. Radio was in its infancy, and uh, uh, there was no uh, really organized leagues. We used to organize our own league. And then of course i learned to skate when i was about six or seven with my dad's old skates they had heels on them and and then uh, when i got to be about seven he bought me a pair of skates and uh, then i started about seven or eight years of age and i was on the first uh, uh, so-called peewee team championship team in the city of winnipeg our little team uh, won the championship in 1926. was it fair to say that it was your dream to play in the nhl then and- Yes, it was. My dream was to play uh, like I had a chance to. I was too young, and I knew I'd never get on. When I turned pro in 1935, I had a chance. I got a letter from the Olympics to go and try out for Canadian Olympic team. And I knew at my age they'd never use me, so I turned pro with the uh, New York Rangers, and they sent me to Philadelphia, and I was there two months, then I went to the Rangers. Where'd you get the babe from? Was that from New York? That, that, no, that was the time I was a kid. And my older brother took me to play a little baseball. And I and, <laughs> uh, hit the ball out of the infield a couple of times. Somebody said, he's a regular Babe Ruth. <laughs> and the next day, it was Babe. And from then on, it was... And I think it's a little bit better than Walter. <laughs> you were the first man hired by the Vancouver Canucks in 1970, weren't you? Yeah, they needed a, a so-called John the Baptist to, to, uh, to uh, beat the Bushes and let them know the NHL is here. You know, this is the greatest sports town in the world, this Vancouver uh, area, this British Columbia. We just have to have a winning team. Of the trophies that you've won, the awards, which one is most important to you? Being inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame is, uh, you know, I was on two Stanley Cup winners, and and, uh, I was chosen one year, I was chosen the most valuable player in the National League, won the Hart Trophy, and... uh, Yet to being inducted by uh, your peers uh, into the Hockey Hall of Fame, and being with all those great players, to have your uh, your picture in that Hall of Fame—that—that—that that, that I think is the, uh, the frosting on the cake, you might say. It's a, it's the sweetest thing that can happen to any athlete, regardless of whether he plays football, tennis, basketball, to be inducted into a Hall of Fame. That's it. To me, sports were everything. Uh, just everything, you know, was the most beautiful part of my life was uh, growing up and, and uh, in fact, my adult life was uh, uh, playing hockey and golf and uh, being mixed up in sports. Uh, uh, I don't think there's a, a millionaire in the world today that had as beautiful a life as I've had. You know, to win a Stanley Cup and get your name on that trophy every time you're watching television and you see that trophy shown, you know, you can say, boy, my name's on that. that's nice
0: (laughs) in 1920 the Langtree Fox farm tower was built as a lighthouse-like wooden structure that stands at four stories tall and can be seen across the landscape this building is a rare example of the type of building used during the brief industry of fur farming that was found in the area peaking in the mid 20th century due to the building's height it became a lookout point for farmers who could observe and control the livestock and animals of the area without disrupting their breeding and parenting cycles. By the 1950s, the building was no longer used for fur farming and would be moved from its original site. Today, it sits as an interpretive center that highlights the history of fur farming in Manitoba, and due to its historic importance, it was made a municipal heritage site in 2002. In 1925, a massive gathering of Orangemen was held in Stonewall, where the organization passed a resolution to object any changes being made to the Union Jack as the flag of Canada. Over 6,000 members were on hand for one of the largest gatherings of the Orange Men in Canadian history to that point. Of course, four decades later, despite their objections, Canada would get its new flag. I hope you enjoyed that episode my look at Rockwood, Manitoba. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at You can find me on Twitter. My handle is craigbaird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect Wendy Mills, Keelan Pringnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Paken, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Rowa, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.